Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Adrian from New Orleans. I used to be a serious drinker. Like, I'd get off work on Friday, stay hammered till Sunday. Uh, but over the years, it got to be a lot less fun. And one day, I just kind of stopped drinking. And I don't miss being drunk all the time. I'll still have a cocktail from time to time. But I really don't need it to have a good time. So, bitch, I am the good time. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And Adrian, I am the good time from New Orleans, is my new self-confidence role model, Caroline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, but question for you. How would you describe your relationship status with alcohol? Oh, we're friends. Yeah? Yeah, we're friends. We see each other maybe two, three times a week, not nearly as much as we used to. And uh, now that I'm 36, that's kind of where I like to keep it. What about you? I would describe it as an ex that I'm on good terms with, you know, like we can have a good time when we see each other, but too much time together leads to anxiety hangovers. Oh, yeah. Like my mental health really just cannot handle heavy drinking anymore. And this question about, you know, your relationship status with alcohol is one we recently posed to unladylike listeners to help us make sense of something that we had started noticing both in our own friend circles and very much so on social media. Yeah, it seems like more women are openly taking time outs from drinking or breaking up with it for good. And while not drinking might seem like a straightforward choice on the outside, for most sober unladies we heard from, it's complicated. My name is Ida. I'm calling from Madison, Wisconsin. And I have been sober for about a year now, and it is hard. And your work kind of mandates happy hours, and you still have to go and drink with your coworkers. And when you tell people that you don't drink, you're kind of looked at like you're a crazy person. Ida's right. Caroline, as you and I know from personal experience, booze can feel hard to escape. Like, it is the social lubricant of adulthood. Yeah, like, in my early 20s, I was working the 4 to midnight shift at a newspaper, and that meant bar hopping after every shift. And if I had wanted to skip out on it, like, A, people would have looked at me weird, just like Ida said— And B, I basically would not have had a social life. Yeah, this is also reminding me of when I got on anti-anxiety medication a few years back. And initially, I just had zero taste for alcohol and also wanted to give my brain a chance to adjust to the meds. And when I hung out with friends one weekend and they clocked that I was only drinking LaCroix, 
I still remember, like, the truly concerned looks that I got. (laughs) Okay, so you weren't drinking at the time and were technically sober. Mm -hmm. But sobriety can mean different things to different people. Right. I mean, there are the folks who don't drink as a matter of personal taste or faith, or the folks who can't drink for medical and or medicated reasons. Then you've got the not drinking right nowers, a.k.a. the sober curious. These folks tend to be loud, proud, and in it as part of a wellness lifestyle. And then, of course, there are the sober folks who might identify as sober alcoholics or in recovery. And for them, not drinking isn't so much a choice as it is a necessity to stay alive, get healthy, and improve their quality of life. My name is Jordan, and I am an alcoholic. That's how they make you do it at meetings. For someone like me, the recent Instagram trend of sobriety is both helpful and infuriating. Part of what's infuriating is that I'm a person who has had a hell of a time getting sober. And when somebody struggling with addiction turns to the internet for actual help and instead finds the 13 most helpful sobriety ditches you need to follow right now, it's not ideal. Now, who knows? Maybe those 13 sobriety bitches are somebody's role models. Maybe. But it's understandable that unladies like Jordan might feel like their hard-fought recovery is being co-opted. So today, we're not here to write a one-size-fits-all alcohol prescription. Instead, we're spending this episode exploring the grayer layers and spotlighting some major themes around gender and drinking that we heard from y'all, the unladylike listeners. It's all to find out. How do we choose our no-booze choices? And what happens when women sober up? So Kristen, here's the thing. It's totally normal for women to drink. Mm -hmm. Shocker. But ladylike rules still apply to how we're expected to do it. Yeah, I'd say they go something like drink modestly, less than men, and preferably not beer. (laughs) And while proper ladies aren't supposed to get wasted, duh, sobering up might be more unladylike. It implies that you can't or don't want to follow those rules at all. Here's listener Barbara. I loathed dry January. I mean, I would see this pop up in my Facebook feed and I would be so angry and annoyed and I'm not giving up the rare times that I get a chance to sit down and have a drink and run. But the truth is that I was terrified of not being able to stop uh, on the way home to have a drink. And that was not something that I was interested in examining. What I can say now is I am three years sober and that I'm not going to drink today. Caroline, I totally empathize with Barbara's initial bristling at dry January. Like years back when it first started becoming a thing, it also put me on the defensive. Like, oh, well, aren't you so perfect with your not drinking for a month and loving it? (laughs) Yeah, one thing that rang loud and clear in the voicemails and letters we got from sober unladies is how not drinking means dealing with other people's opinions. Like assuming you're on a high horse or you're bound to be a buzzkill. Exactly. So take, for instance, listener Kayla from Minnesota. Growing up, her parents didn't drink because they just weren't into the taste. And being around drunk people has always made Kayla uncomfortable. Although I don't judge anyone else for drinking, it still inhibited my ability to make friends in college and beyond. So now, at 28 years old, I do have an occasional drink in a social situation because it's easier to simply give in to social pressures rather than fight them. 
But I do wish that those pressures didn't exist. Those pressures can be super invasive, too. Caroline, it reminds me of how some people interpret baby bumps or visible tattoos as invitations to touch Mm. you. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like folks feel especially entitled to know why a woman is sober or not drinking. Yeah, it blew my mind how much that came up in all the messages we got for this episode. Like, y'all get grilled if you pass up a cocktail. And I admit, I have been that griller, Caroline. And in retrospect, like, it is fucked up that there have been times I did not want to take no for an answer because our reasons for not drinking are often really personal and not things you should have to disclose to people on demand. Yeah, for instance, we heard from sexual assault survivors who prefer to not drink or be around drunk people because it's triggering. Or from other folks who have chronic illnesses or allergies, and alcohol just doesn't agree with them. This social side-eyeing of sobriety doesn't always stop when you leave the bar, either. Sometimes, Caroline, the claptrap is coming from inside the house. (laughs) A listener named T, who grew up in a heavy-drinking Irish family, gradually lost interest in booze. And she shared the extreme lengths she went to to get her family to lay off her about it. So I stopped drinking in 2014. And at that time, my therapist suggested that one of the strategies I should use was to tell people that I wasn't drinking because I had a heart condition, because I am on medications for something else. And people would just assume that when they saw me taking meds, that I was taking heart meds. So that was what I did at that time. And I even told my family, my friends, everybody. To this day, they all still think that I have a heart condition. That's why I don't drink. And Caroline, faking a heart condition still doesn't stop people from prying. They sometimes will say, oh, well, you can have just one. Well, for goodness sake, if I really did have some kind of serious heart condition and here you are telling a stranger, oh, no, it's fine. I know more than your doctor. I know more than your pharmacist. I know more than you about your own body. Truly wild. And this gets me thinking, though, Kristen, is this kind of scrutiny different for women? Okay, this is something that I've also been thinking about in my personal life ever since I got married because there are times when I don't really want to drink, but I go ahead and order a cocktail anyway because, Caroline, I know the question that's coming if I don't. Mm -hmm. And it's something listener AJ from Colorado has had to deal with as well. There have been plenty of times I've been out with friends and not wanted to drink for a variety of reasons or just not feeling like it. But I'm in my mid-30s and I'm married, so the default assumption is I must be pregnant. It was annoying when I wasn't pregnant and just didn't feel like drinking, but it was also very annoying when I was pregnant and didn't want to tell anyone yet. And it's so frustrating to be reduced to reproductive capabilities as if that's the only reason I could be ordering iced tea instead of a cocktail with dinner. Here, here, AJ. It is frustrating. Plus, when it comes to pregnancy and alcohol, there's also a chance that someone isn't drinking because they're trying to conceive, which is also none of anyone else's business. But society's booze cruise gets even weirder with motherhood. Yeah, folks, we're talking about sassy mom wine culture. You know the memes, you know, a coffee, wine, Amazon Prime, or it's a pump and dump kind of day. (laughs) And you've definitely seen it IRL in the wine aisle with brands like Mad Housewife, Mommy's Time Out, or, you know, somebody please shove these babies back up in my ute pronto. (laughs) It's a Pinot Noir. Here's listener and new mom Samantha from New Brunswick, Canada. I stopped drinking 
as my New Year's resolution. I know that sounds cheesy, but it's been a long time coming. I've just found that the mom culture literally revolves around wine. And that's been something that I find so incredibly toxic and weird. I mean, every time any moms get together, I feel like everything revolves around liquor. And that's a little bit difficult because the next day you have your baby and you can't, or in my case, I just can't be fully present for my family and for my kids um, when I had drank the day before. But I think it takes a lot of effort and time to figure out what your relationship with booze is with booze because there is such a a stigma out there. Um, no one wants to be called an alcoholic. But Kristen, wine mom culture actually isn't new or coincidental. It's the result of decades of targeted marketing. Right. So back in the 1960s and 70s, winemakers were like, oh, this beverage is only drunk at fancy restaurants. What can we do? Answer, get the housewives on board. Y'all, they were tapping into the real housewives before (laughs) Bravo was even a glimmer in Andy Cohen's eye. In a moderate amount, alcohol is like a sedative, a tranquilizer. It relaxes you, makes you more congenial. This helps make a gathering cheerful and friendly. Next thing you know, you've got wine samples being given out in grocery stores and women's magazines offering tips on how to serve wine at home. And in 1977, McCall's magazine even promoted an anti-stress diet that heavily featured wine. (laughs) Well, today's wine mom culture also exemplifies how women's proper place and proper drinking place has always been in the home. Oh, yeah, we've got a lot of patriarchal bullshit to pump and dump when it comes to female drinking habits. Stick around. We're back, and so far, we've been talking about how unladies today navigate not drinking. But y'all, there's still loads of gender baggage that's often left out of conversations around women, alcohol, and sobriety. Kristen? Caroline? (laughs) Sounds like it's time to unpack some claptrap. Unpack the Claptrap is the part of the show where we uncork patriarchy's sour grapes to find out why things are the way they are. Specifically, how ladylike rules got wrapped up with alcohol in the first place, and why getting drunk is one of the most enduring white male privileges. Yes. So strap on your petticoats and let's go back in time to colonial America. Back then, it was all about the booze, partly because it was safer to drink than water. And brewing cider and ale at home was actually a standard domestic duty for women. Caroline, they were kind of like the original wine moms, too, like minus the sass. (laughs) For a long time, like it, it wasn't taboo for women to take a nip at home for relaxation or as medicine for aches and pains. Mm, Yeah, but by the 1800s, things started to spiral. Alcohol production had moved from the kitchen to the factory, which meant there was more and cheaper booze available. Men getting hammered with their bros at taverns and pubs became the new manly way to unwind after a workday. Meanwhile, their wives and children bore the brunt. 
Remember, domestic violence and abuse wasn't criminalized at the time. If your alcoholic husband lost his job, it's not like women could become the breadwinners instead. I mean, wives didn't even have legal rights to initiate divorce. Enter the temperance movement. In the 1820s, the American Temperance Society claimed men were drinking 15 times more than women and that men's drinking was endangering the family unit's survival. The white middle-class Christian gals leading the temperance movement blamed this demon rum for corrupting American culture. Banning booze became a moral high road and the ladylike thing to do. Yeah, in fact, more white women supported prohibition than the suffrage movement. Ladies wanted to protect the home, not get involved in men's business, a.k.a. politics. And in part because those temperance gals didn't pose a threat to patriarchal power at large, The movement was successful. Yeah, super successful, like constitutional amendment successful. Prohibition went into effect in 1920, and alcohol was banned across the land. But pretty much as soon as alcohol became legal again in the U.S. 13 years later, folks were like, okay, but how will we protect all these fragile women, specifically white middle-class women, from the evils of alcohol? Answer? Keep them out of the bars. Jim's date, Judy, had never tasted liquor before, and soon Judy catches the spirit of the thing. The boys can't understand Judy, only two drinks and look at her. Yeah, did y'all know that cities and towns across the country passed ordinances banning women from drinking establishments? And it was common for bars to post signs reading, No unescorted ladies will be served. Caroline, bars were indeed the original man caves. (laughs) Fast forward to the 1960s and 70s, right around the same time when winemakers were convincing housewives to drink alone at home. And feminists were fed up. Like, they were working nine-to-fives and wanted to have a drink in public, just like all the guys. So, in 1969, the National Organization for Women, a.k.a. NOW, staged drink-ins at men's-only bars and restaurants across the country. And finally, by the mid-70s, most watering holes in the U.S. had lifted their no-unescorted-ladies-allowed rule. And it's true that as women's social power has increased over the past century, so has our drinking. Like, as of 2018, women had all but closed the drinking gender gap. But sober spaces haven't traditionally been all that inviting for women either. Like, after all, it was a group of white, upper-middle-class men who started Alcoholics Anonymous in the early 1930s. Now, AA remains the oldest and largest alcohol support group in the world to this day. But it's still pretty male-focused. For instance, AA's go-to recovery text called The Big Book exclusively uses he-him pronouns throughout, and the organization has actively resisted updating the language. Yeah, we heard about AA's gender baggage from a number of sober, unladylike listeners, including Jordan, who you heard at the top of the episode. If you stepped into an AA meeting, any meeting, any church basement, I guarantee it, you'll find another place full of middle-aged men. Everything about AA is littered with patriarchal scripture. At my first meeting, I was given a brochure called AA for the Woman, and I held hands with 12 other men at the end, feeling about as safe as being the drunk girl at a frat party. Those AA gender dynamics are partly why we've been noticing more women-led sobriety and sober-curious communities popping up on Instagram and just across social media. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of the who's who of this, like, new sobriety space of influencers, dry bars, and new non-alcoholic beverage brands 
are women, and most visibly white women, who are also connecting sobriety to feminism and the Me Too movement. Yeah, it kind of harkens back to the temperance era when you have, like, white ladies leading the charge against the drunken patriarchy. Totally. Plus, though, the whole white ladiness that you and I noticed got us wondering whether the ways race and class can factor into sobriety are being overlooked. After the break, we'll hear from three women who are dealing with those intersections head-on and how they navigate sobriety. Stick around. I feel like I don't see enough black and brown people in the recovery communities that I'm in because the conversation around sobriety and recovery and even the conversation around alcoholism and addiction is no longer, and I don't know if it ever was targeted to us. We're back, and the voice you just heard is Shayla Martin, a writer who first caught my attention with an essay she wrote for Shondaland about being a Black woman in recovery. In it, Shayla wrote that because the mental health industry is so predominantly white, it can be an intimidating space for a Black woman. And it's not just IRL spaces. Shayla sees it within the online sober curious community, too. Just this idea that, like, sober curiosity is being marketed and branded as this, like, cute new thing. You know, it's definitely being marketed, in my opinion, to young, hip white people. I sort of liken it to, like, the Sex in the City set without the cosmos. It's just kind of crazy to me that Black and brown people are not getting access to the treatment they need for alcoholism. And now even the idea of sobriety and recovery is not being marketed to us either. Like, that's just mind-boggling to me. To be clear, Shayla is all for folks taking breaks from booze. To her, it's the language, marketing, and just whitewashing of sobriety that's the problem. So to go a little deeper on this, we also talked with Jocelyn Harvey, who got sober at 24. Jocelyn lives in very white Burlington, Vermont, and she writes about how being Black can shape your recovery experience. So we called up Jocelyn over Skype. I drink for a ton of reasons, which I think most people can relate to. Like, you know, if I something really happy happened, I would drink. Or if I was sad, I would drink. But they're like, everyone, too, has deeper reasons why they drink as well. And I never realized at the time that a lot of my drinking was, like, tied to feeling anxious as a Black person and just always being in very white spaces and wanting to feel like I was um, accepted and, you know, drinking a certain way and drinking certain things, like, helped me do that. It helped lessen my anxiety. Um, I even have to check my politeness. Like, I was just raised with manners, but sometimes I can tell when, like, I'm doing something a certain way because, like, I want to look good for, like, the entire Black community um, rather than just being, like, a polite, kind person. Well, how has your identity as a Black woman intersected with and sort of shaped your entire recovery experience? 
Yeah. So it's like the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> in terms of like, in terms of AA, because, um, you know, people do ask about that, like, oh, it's like a really like, it's a really white community. And yes, it's an extremely white community. However, I was um, adopted by a white family and raised in very white New England. So it wasn't like a huge culture shock to be able to like walk into that meeting. It was like, oh, okay, like I'm the only black person here. Story of my life, essentially. <laughs> so it made it easier to go to meetings, I would say. And then the other things, like how being black has shaped my recovery, really just the big one has been making sure I'm working with, whether it's like a sponsor or a therapist or just talking to people that can like understand microaggressions that people go through. And then one that I am pretty like pro talking about is anger. And I even speak about that in relation to like all women too, is that, you know, black women especially, and, you know, certain groups haven't really been, like, afforded the ability to be angry. It can be dangerous. It can, you know, hold you back in your career. It can be really frowned upon. So around, like, two and a half years sober, I realized how angry I was and that I wasn't expressing that. So if I'm, like, in spaces that are recovery-based or even, like, spirituality, when people start, like, poo-pooing anger and how we should avoid it. I'm always very vocal about the fact that a lot of people haven't been able to like express that and know what anger is like in their life and figuring out how to work with that. It is just different if you're a woman and there's another layer added to it when you're a minority. Our unladylike producer, Nora, wanted to learn more about those layers too. Hi, Nora. Hi, ladies. So I called up Irina Gonzalez, who has been sober for more than four years. She's an editor and writer living in Florida, and she writes a lot about mental health in the Latinx community, especially in regards to alcohol and recovery. There's a saying in Spanish, which is pretty much the same as in English, which is that you don't air your dirty laundry. And I think that that is taken very seriously in Latino culture in terms of you know, you don't talk about your problems. There's also a very, very, very big stigma with like being the crazy one in the family, um, like the La Loca type thing. And I think that for many Latinos, that's really a fear because you, you're you always hearing about like not wanting to be like the crazy aunt and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of stigma surrounding just like talking about mental health. It's really not taken seriously at all. So when you realized you had a problem was it something that you felt comfortable talking to your family about? Uh, you know, mental health is not really a topic that ever came up in my family. And even now that I've been through rehab and recovery and I'm sober, it's still something that we don't very frequently talk about. And I think that had a lot to do with um, how I felt and just not being able to handle a lot of the things I wasn't able to handle before getting sober. Yeah, so Irina had always drunk socially when she was feeling anxious. But when she landed her dream job and then subsequently lost it because of her drinking, Irina realized she really had a problem. Um, so she went to rehab where she was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. It was very hard. Um, it was very hard and shocking, I think, when I went to, you know, rehab at 29 and, and discovered that that mental health was like a thing that I, I was struggling with and, and had no idea um, and, you know, it's, it's been even tough since to, to kind of like include my parents in, into that conversation. Mm, what's tough about it now? Well, honestly, uh, the language barrier, it can be a little bit tough. I think for a lot of Latinos de dealing with mental health issues, it's 
severely underreported in our culture. Um, you know, a lot of Latinos don't talk to their doctors when they're feeling sad or blue or whatever. And I think that's really hard now. Um, it's gotten a little easier to be, you know, kind of force myself to be a little bit more open with my parents. And I think there's just like a general attitude when it comes to immigrants, which my, my parents are immigrants. And so there's this kind of attitude of like toughening up, which I think is something that I admire in my parents. But when I think about mental health struggles, it's actually something that I think is hurting us as a people. You know, you're stressed out because you saw something on the news or because your cousin is getting deported or, you know, you, you have family members who are in cages or, you know, just even hearing that news. And I think there's not a lot of support in the community. So I think a lot of people and I think a lot more people will be turning to alcohol as a way to cope with all the stressors of today and all the immigrant hate that we hear on a da- on the daily basis. Jocelyn and Arena's personal stories are also supported by data. A 2017 study on Americans' alcohol use found that since the early 2000s, alcohol addiction and binge drinking has increased faster among people of color compared to white people. And the researchers attribute this to increased stress and demoralization they tend to experience. So, Nora, what kind of advice does Arena have for coping with those kinds of intense stressors sans alcohol? Well, so she recommends seeking out treatment for sure uh, in whatever way you see fit and or can afford. And rather than worrying about the social backlash or side-eyeing that may come along with coming out as sober, Irina really emphasizes building your community and relationships. There's a really fantastic journalist by the name of Johan Hari who has a couple books. And he has this quote that I hear a lot in the recovery community, which is that the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's something that I think we don't think about when it comes to healing from alcohol or healing from, you know, drugs, that the importance of connecting with other people, the importance of finding support, whether that's in a recovery group or through family members or with a mental health professional, all of that is important. As far as navigating spaces where there is alcohol or there is an expectation that people are going to be drinking, how do you approach those settings? Or is there a certain thing you say to someone when they're like, hey, do you want to drink? You know? Mm-hmm. Really, it's just kind of being open and honest about my sobriety. You know, if someone says to me, hey, do you want to drink? I will say, well, actually, you know, I don't drink alcohol. And if they ask why, I, I'm, I'm much more upfront and just say, oh, well, I'm in recovery. By actually making it less of a big deal, I think I, I feel that I'm helping with some of that stigma. There's a lot of sober people out there. There's a lot of people in recovery and we all look different and it doesn't have to be like a huge deal that someone doesn't drink. Okay, Caroline and Nora, I've got just two cents to toss in before we wrap up. Let's hear it. So for all those folks who are drinking, Mm -hmm. including you and me, Caroline, let's stop fucking asking (laughs) people who aren't drinking, like, what's up with that? You know? Yes. And I say this also to myself, like, <laughs> let's just take no for an answer, because in the immortal words of salt and Peppa, it's none of your business. It is none of your business. 
Thank you to all y'all who wrote us and left us voicemails for this episode. Even if yours didn't make it in, please know that we heard you and so, so appreciate your input. Yes, and keep those stories coming. You can email us your thoughts at hello at unladylike.co, hit us up on social at unladylike media, or join our private Facebook group and find the thread for this episode. If you're struggling with alcohol addiction or your relationship with alcohol, head over to our site, unladylike.co, to find this episode's sources. We've linked to a ton of different resources. Plus, you'll find the transcript for this week's episode. While you're there, you can buy some pretty sweet merch and sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly update on actually good news about women in the world. And if you need a little more CNC in your ears, we've got news. We are now on Patreon, bringing y'all ad-free, extra, unladylike bonus episodes. Head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia to subscribe and support us. And if you're still hungry for more, we have an entire pep talk series over at Stitcher Premium. Nora Ritchie and Sam Lee are the producers of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. We're your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... I'm never going to be mad at somebody scamming the rich because rich people have to scam to become rich, so it is only fair. It is the circle of life. Yeah, it's just evening things out. Exactly. Really. It's like, look, y'all don't want to pay taxes, so uh, we got to rob <laughs> y'all. Like, I don't... This is tax. <laughs> this is... this is. I'm Uncle Sam, and I want you. That's right. We're talking about one of my favorite schadenfreudes, scams. We're talking to Lacey Mosley of Scam Goddess and Jane Marie of the podcast The Dream. You don't want to miss this episode, y'all. Yeah, so make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. That's right. And if <laughs> I don't want to whine at home with me tonight, it's, it's none, none of your, your business. business. If I want to be a freak and stay in on the weekend, it's none, it's none of, of your business. business. <laughs> Stitcher. 